Folks, you have wandered into another episode of Full Contact Cannabis with my host, Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media. I'm Harold Jarbo, aka the Old Hemp Farmer of Tennessee Homegrown. We're with Mark. And the name of your company? Hi, the name of the lighting manufacturer is AB Lighting. How long have you been trying to get into the cannabis sector? Yeah, so AB Lighting is a it's a subsidiary of Enlight Technology, which is around 10 years old. I'm the CEO of AB Lighting, and I know the founder of Enlight. We used to work together. I ran a commercial lighting company for a decade, basically, and he was in charge of our R&D. And he left about 10 years ago to start this grow light business uh, in light technology. So I've known the the founder, for, and he's a friend, and for more than 10 years, and he and I have remained in contact ever since. I joined him and offered to you know, help him out grow our business in the U.S. and Canada about a year ago. So it's not a new business. It's a new brand. AB Lighting is a new brand. We have been a manufacturer both on the OEM side. So we're an OEM manufacturer for some of the big brands. And then we also have our own brand in light. And then most recently, AB Lighting, which is the brand that I'm responsible for. The parent company is out of where? It's a Chinese company in light technology. They have aspirations of becoming a public company. And I've, I've helped other Chinese organizations go public. So I, I'm, my goal is to help them achieve that same goal. The origins of your lighting company, the lighting was, what was its first primary purpose? It was. It has always been. So the the company I came from was Jaiwei Technology, which is a commercial lighting company. They lived in the commercial lighting, both residential and, and project industrial lighting. I was their CEO, and I basically ran all their businesses around the world. And we had big operations here in the States, and then also we had an operation in Europe, and also an office in Dubai. But I ran that business for a decade, basically. So I come out of the commercial lighting business, non-grow light. About a year ago, a little more than a year ago, I started working with Henry, the, the founder of, of AB Lighting or Inlight, and started learning more about the industry, learning more about the technology, because it's different than just traditional lighting, of course, and uh, joined him about a year ago. What prompted the, the move into cannabis? Well, he has always been cannabis. We do some non-cannabis grows too, but he, he actually, uh, his goal when he created the company was to bo- do both, you know, vegetable growing, you know, lights for vegetables as well as cannabis. But he, he knew in his own mind, he felt pretty strongly that cannabis was had along, had feet, you know, get traction and would grow. Um, so he's always had cannabis in the back of his mind as a, as a primary uh, vertical, so to speak. Well, I'm curious about, you know, the, right now there's this uh, kind of a debate within the cannabis industry uh, about the carbon footprint thing. Uh, most of the people, and a caveat here, I grow outside because I'm not paying anything per kilowatt hour. Basically, uh, one of the companies we know out Washington State, they're they're doing outdoor. How do you guys feel about that and the whole debate with about the carbon footprint? I think it's definitely a factor. Um, I think that, and you don't, you know, we are not out to try and second guess or to, you know, criticize any grower that's had success. Our goal is not to, 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 you know, everyone's sort of got their own, their own chemistry, their own, you know, their own way they like to do business and do their cultivation. And we respect all that. We just want to be a resource for, for them if they are wanting to move to some type of, you know, non-LED lighting to lighting, or they want to start doing some greenhouse or something that has LED technology. 
there's pros and cons to both. Carbon footprint for certainly is a, is a challenge. If you want to be a true environmentalist, that, then we get that. Some of the upsides to having an indoor grow, or you know, you can control the the total environment much better. Certainly, you can control disease and you control insects better inside. So I think there's some advantages, you know, inside, you know, with the proper lighting and all the other factors, CO2 and so forth, and HVAC, you know, our growers tell us that they can get, you know, better yield with a controlled environment. So again, I, I think there's pros and cons to it. Um, if if you feel the, the outdoor grow is the way you want to go, that, hey, we respect that. The challenge a lot of the country doesn't have desirable outdoor climate, though, most of the year. So, those markets in those states, I mean, they, they struggle, you know, if they're in, a, in, the, in the north or, or you know, in, in, you know, where there's tougher winters, those are tough markets to grow in. They only get a very short window to grow outside. But you know what state has more indoor grows and uses more power than any state in the union? Well, probably California. Texas. Is it Texas? Okay. You're talking about not just cannabis, you're talking about all crops, right? No, I'm talking about hemp, and they're growing for high CBD. Sure, okay. In Texas, when I found that fact, it was just like that blew my mind. But then, when yeah. you think about it, Texas for outdoor cannabis, especially in the east part of the state, was totally inhospitable. It's it's too hot and too dry. So the other challenge you have when you look at some of those statistics, anytime you're trying to look at the total market, both the legal and the black. You're, you're, it's, you're guesstimating. <laughs> so it's, it's very difficult to, to add the, the black market, you know, numbers into some of those figures and come out, you know, within 10%. But, but you're right. I'm, I'm, Texas is a big state and I'm not surprised at that statistic at all, actually. Well, that, the, and what surprised me is they're growing smokable hemp. That's where mm-hmm. most of these things are. And that was kind of what it is. Uh, I first started in high THC uh, uh-huh. with uh, Columbia River Cannabis up in Washington. And then when they legalized uh, high CBD cannabis in Tennessee, I moved there strictly because I knew I didn't have to do 280E, which is the owner's IRS, and I could deduct everything, and my tax bracket would be different. So how much have you guys looked into, uh, since that is, uh, basically, there's more high CBD cannabis grown in America than anything? You know, we don't really break the vertical down by that type of segment. We primarily go after the hemp and cannabis growers and vegetable growers. How much do you think your clients are high CBD cannabis? I would say that at least half are. I think with so much pressure on pricing, you know, and some of these states have just enormous price pressure on, on the average product that these growers are trying to, you know, lift the quality of their cannabis to, to be able to be in that in that craft or high quality area to try and get away from the bottom of the barrel pricing right now. So I think there is a lot of the a lot of our growers are very focused on quality and very focused on high THC. You know they don't always tell us all those things. So I mean you you're a grower, so you have a you have a, a better grounded feel for it. But I'm going to be frank. A lot of these growers are pretty secretive about what they do. Unless you get to know them really well, they don't just open up everything to you. They, they tell you what you need to know. <laughs> so I'll just be frank with you. So what is your working relationship with your growers and how much you work with them in order to tailor your products? They tell us, I think in the beginning, it's more formal. And I think is once we ship them the first round or two of lights and, you know, help them with their, you know, with 
the, the installation details and cabling and and control and all those things. I think the the longer we work with them, then they start to open up and tell more. But we don't ask the questions. I want to be that's not our 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 you know we don't need to know all their details if they want to offer and ask and for ask questions and give us feedback we're happy to go into those areas but to be frank i mean we just want to make sure they're happy with the performance of our products i was kind of curious then were your products developed for cannabis growers or that you basically used existing technology and then basically tried to fit it to cannabis no our our the spectrums that we use that we use in our products, and we have again, we have greenhouse lights. We've got lights that are for the the flower or for the veg stage, you know, for for mother and veg, and then and we have other or or two big heavy hitters are on the the flower stage. They were developed for cannabis, and what typically happens is when we get into an, an opportunity where they're going to do vegetables, then we when we end up doing usually for a large project we do something custom we do more red and we're working on a project now in canada that they want to order twenty thousand light fixtures so and it's all vegetable so we're designing because of the quantity of lights that's like a 13 million dollar 12 million dollar order we're for that that size of a project we're working directly with engineers and we're developing a light perfectly just for them so you answer your question in short yes our lights are designed for cannabis if the customer is doing non-cannabis applications, then we're willing to go down a path of a custom spectrum for them. What kind of R&D does your company do as far as trying to make sure that the color spectrum's where it needs to be at the right time and things so like we, that? We have about 12 engineers that work for us. About a dozen, we have total about 500 employees and there's a dozen engineers that are focused specifically on R&D of our, of our product. Are they working in greenhouses or grow rooms? Oh, both. No, they're doing both. No, we're doing vertical grows. We're doing indoor grows. We're doing greenhouses. And, and also, you know, we're doing a little bit of work outdoors. We've tested our products on 50 different crops. And we also do, and again, I don't have the bandwidth to do Europe. They want me to do Europe, but we do some business in Europe as well for non-cannabis. So we have a pretty good cross-section of application in cannabis and non-cannabis. Your company started catering to cannabis in what year? I'd say we probably got really serious seven or eight years ago. And I can't disclose for you the brands that we make, but all, all, all I can say is, is that we make, we make some of the A brands in the industry. So we have their feedback as well and their R&D input as well. You are supplying lights for other people like White Label? It's their brand. How's that working out? I mean, it's good. I mean, there, you know, there's enough there's enough room for all of us to coexist. We have no problem competing, um, and they are okay with it. Only because you know we try not be too crazy about our you know we 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 take the high road when it comes to pricing and so forth. We don't, you know, we are very professional, and we have a, a fixed price list for projects. We have a fixed price list for um for our distribution partners, and we don't we don't play games. I mean, we stick to the price list. And um, when we go into these deals, if we happen to be competing with with one of our brands that we make the product, it's a it's above board fair and square deal, and uh, made the best man win. The market is plenty big enough that we can coexist. Since you've been doing this seven years, what are your observations on the changing nature of the industry? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a, obviously that's a great question. I think the industry 
you know, it's changing in different ways. One thing we see is a lot of consolidation. So we see, you know, we see companies like Grow Generation buying up, you know, other companies at a pretty rapid clip. Of course, they're public. They can, they've got some capital to do that. You know, we see we see companies like Hawthorne, you know, purchasing, you know, Gavita and now Lux Lighting and so forth. And we, we see, a, we're starting to see, you know, more and more consolidation among, you know, the big players. We're seeing uh, on, on another another angle, we're seeing companies like, you know, Acreage, was it Acreage Farms out of Southern California be purchased by Pfizer for like nearly $7 billion here, you know, three or four months ago. We see states becoming more and more legal. I think there's only six states now in the U.S. that are totally illegal, only six. All the other states are either partially legal or fully legal. Like 19 states are fully legal. So, um, I, you know, the industry is changing, you know, I, I would say almost daily. And it depends on where you are is how you're impacted by those macro level changes, because I, states are clearly in varying degrees of, of maturity for sure. Um, you know, some states have figured out how to license, you know, give license for growers and dispensaries. Well, other states are struggling. They're, they're trying to figure it out. Even though they're legal, they haven't figured out the administrative part of it. I think the industry is super interesting. It is all over the place right now. Distribution is changing too, as these, as you know, I think the, it used to be, I think that the, the hydroponic stores was your main, you know, your main outlet to buy product. I mean, now you've got, you know, large distributors that, that sell direct and they've got key account managers and all they sell still, still sell some stores for the home grower. I think you're going to see mass retail. Uh, Amazon has already started, you know, with product offerings for, for home growers and, and so forth. But I think you're going to see home centers, you know, venture more into the into that space and, and to support the DIY or a home grower. There are massive changes taking place every week in the industry. And you, it's, and you can't, you can never get comfortable because <laughs> well, the moment you, you get you're gonna get ran over if you get comfortable. So speaking of being comfortable, the amount of of high CBD cannabis is starting to drop drastically. Here in the state of Tennessee, uh, uh -huh. in 2019, we had 4,000 licensed producers. Mm -hmm. We will probably have around 400 this year. Oh, wow. That's that's a big, huge drop. I well, have homes in, in uh, eastern Tennessee, rental properties, so I'm a little bit familiar with the with the Tennessee market. I didn't well, realize that the, the number of licensees are dropping that much, though. Well, all over the country. I mean, the one thing about the USDA implementing their rules is that, yeah, they kind of are getting a little bit more of a grip on what's being grown, at least on the high CBD cannabis sector. I see. And the amount has has dropped because a couple different things you can't get the price for it but I, that was kind of what i was curious about uh in the more mature markets the the competition as little as four or five years ago for indoor you could get twenty eight hundred dollars a pound now in california oregon washington if you can get ten eleven hundred for yep. indoor it you're lucky has yep. the pro has the pressure on the farmer filtered to you um i think the only thing i would say about that because i mean i i'm the ceo but i i still talk to customers every week you know other salespeople that handle a fair amount of the business but i'm still pretty 
I still have direct lines to to our some of our customers, and I talk to them real regular. I would say that there there's there's some groveling going on out there, especially in some of the mature markets like Oklahoma, California, where the price pressure is really intense. Um, I think there's projects that are on hold because of that. I think there's projects that had, you know, that they have, you know, they have timelines that they've like, they've intentionally let slip because they're kind of worried about the price points and where it's going to go to. The folks that's affected the most are the ones just make just a run-of-the-mill product. Those are the guys that are hurting the most because they can't they can't get that high dollar because they're a high well, THC or well, they're what a craft I'm saying grower. is in mark, markets like Washington, Oregon, California, everybody's felt it. There's too yeah. many growers. So what I'm saying is to you, is there pressure for the product to start reducing kilowatt hours? I think LED in general, especially if they're using HID or HPS light, we bring savings to the table and energy consumption anyways, because they're converting to LED. So we're looked at in that respect, we're looked at very favorably because we're saving them. We're reducing the amount of, of, of AC they have to use because our lights run much cooler than an HPS light, and we're using 30 40% less power. So we're looked at actually as, a, as an attractive alternative when it comes to power consumption and how to lower their electric bill. So there's not been any inkling of people says, I mean, I know a bunch of growers, and yep. right now they're just looking for all over to reduce the margins. And since there are so many, I mean, okay, how many uh, people in China manufacture LEDs? There's a lot of competitors. The space is competitive, no question. Yeah. So what I'm saying is in that, is there pressure to have a superior product? There is, yeah. And and I think, you know, I think there's enough noise out there too where growers have went and bought the cheapest product they could find that, that wasn't in business a year later when their lights failed and no place to go for warranty. There's a in the in the lighting business for LED, going to the cheapest route is almost always a mistake. You're you're always going to get what you pay for, and you're making and you're making an investment in a light that's that's three times the price of an HPS. Shaving dollars isn't always the smartest thing to do. It's going to bite you if you do that. If you focus just on pricing, you're gonna, it's going to bite you. So, but yeah, so I, it has affected our business. I think, like I said earlier, it's delayed projects where, where I think where I think companies companies that have grows that they're looking to do in, in, you know, increase the size of their grows or, or add new facilities and bring online. I think that it's definitely slowed some of them down because they're concerned about the future of the pricing, especially in some of those markets where it's really competitive. But I think LED, I think, is considered a, a positive alternative to non-LED, and we still bring a lot to the table. How much time do you actually have to do now doing customer education? Because basically, it sounds like one of your major problems is, is exactly that that's a great question because you know what when we talk to growers and and by the way we could be dealing with anybody in the house it doesn't always be it's not always the grower i mean sometimes it's the investor sometimes it's the architect i mean sometimes it's the real estate development all kinds of people are involved in these decisions and to be frank we sometimes we meet very intelligent knowledgeable people of lighting and many times they know very little so we do spend a lot of time on the educational side. We provide with all of our quotes and online for all of our items. You can go and you can download a 10-page test report by, done by a third-party lab, a professional lab. In, in our industry, in the lighting business, anybody can put whatever they want on the spec sheets. There's no, there's no law that governs the spec sheets. But if we provide a, a third-party professional lab report with our spec sheet, then it supports our claims. And we think that's important, too. 
And we tell customers, if we're up against one or two other brands, make sure you got those test reports. Just don't take what they put on their spec sheets for as though it's gospel, because almost always it's not. I occasionally get called to consult or whatever. It's nothing I want to do, but occasionally I end up doing. I don't know if you've observed this, but this is one of the few inst- industries where people become instant in- experts. And I agree I, with that. Yep. <laughs> I have sat down and given yeah. people really good counsel and then just went ahead and did what they want. Yeah. So how frustrating is that once yeah. you t- talk to people and you realize, no, they're going to go get HPS. Yeah, there's an emotional element to this too. I think a lot of your a lot of your folks making decisions are they don't look just at the business aspect. They follow their gut quite a bit and and they're and especially if they're an experienced grower. Experienced growers don't like change. They really don't. They don't like change. And a lot of these guys or gals or their spouses are involved in the business. So they consult their spouses to get their input. You know, their whoever they helps them out in their in their with their their crop, they get their input. You know, we I see everything. And and again, I have a very, I don't have to sell every job. You know, we don't need every job to be successful. We just do our best to provide education and good information and 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 allow the customers to make an informed decision as best we can. And whatever decision they make, we respect. And you know what? We keep that door open because they're going to down the road. They might need us again. Even if we didn't get the job, they might need us up ahead. So our philosophy is always has always been build the relationship, try and create some trust, respect. And, you know, so sooner or later, good things will happen for you. Uh, you mentioned you had some big orders. Like, what is your typical customer? Our typical customer places orders from anywhere from $250,000 to a million dollars. That's that's typical. Yeah. Very, once in a while, we'll do a $50,000 order, but almost always our orders are two fifty dollars and up. So you don't deal with the, the small farmer. I will if they want to buy my product. I mean, I you know they can put they can go into their website and they can enter their information and I answer every phone call and every email. Not me, but I have got salespeople that do that. But someone in an organization within a day or two will follow up on every lead that comes into our company, no matter how it came in. And you know, if they want to buy a couple of lights, I got a lettuce grower down in Arkansas that oh, I just shipped two of our our grow lights to for for um, for greenhouses. And he's ecstatic. He's ecstatic. He said, Mark, I'm going to buy 30 lights altogether. That's great. He said, the two I've got, I love. I said, all right, I like it. (laughs) So you're marketing. Where are you trying to market now and who? And who? Yeah, that's a great question. So you're, we've got Uproar on the phone. So Uproar is a PR agency. um, And, and uh, Hannah's assigned to our account to sort of oversee our account. Um, I've used, I have a long history with, with Uproar. I've used them in the past for, you know, other launch, other brands and companies. So, you know, we we focus on, um, you know, media, um, all types of media, you know, TV, digital articles, editorials, whatever. Uh, in a lot of interviews like this, we have a pretty active um, social platform, you know, Instagram, Facebook are our primary uh, channels for social. Um, so we think both of those are, 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 you know, important to talk about who we are and what we're doing. We do a lot of trade shows. We probably do eight or nine trade shows this year. I mean, so that we're, we're out in front of customers at these trade shows quite a bit. 
Aren't there too damn many cannabis expos? Yeah, there is. <laughs> there is for sure. Yeah, there is. And yep. for your marketing dollar, are you seeing less of a bang for your buck? You know, every show can't be a home run. Um, you try and do your due diligence before you do the shows to make sure it's a good one for you. If we do a trade show, we want to walk away with at least a handful of really good opportunities. Um, if we walk away with more than 10, then we did really well. If we, we just did the one in Boston, the NECAN in Boston, oh, I don't know, a week or two ago, and walked away probably with 15 pretty good opportunities in New England. MJ BizCon, for sure, we, we usually walk away between 30 and 40 opportunities at the end of the show. But, I, you know, the trade shows are important. I, I think, it, you know, it tells, the, it tells the industry, it tells your competitors, it tells the distributors that you're there and you're growing and you're successful and you're, you're not going to go anywhere. I think when you, you know, we roll in with a pretty nice booth, a 10 by 20 booth. It's a, it's a very professional, nice booth. And it just says we're here and we're here to stay. So, yeah, I think the trade shows are important, but you, you got to balance that out. You can't do one every week for sure. Does it bother you when you go to these trade shows and you see people, competitors, advertising qualities and abilities that you know don't exist for their lives? Yeah, yeah I mean, I've never liked unprofessional selling. Our power against that is to try and educate our potential buyer the best we can. That's, that's the only power we have. So, you know, the other thing I'm going to tell you also, I think that there's interesting you can create some really good um, strategic partnerships at trade shows. Um, we have one of the other lighting companies now that has been making their own lights for a number of years and they're, and they have a very consultative sell. So they sell more than just lighting. They, they sell, you know, soup to nuts, the whole solution selling. They're struggling with lighting because they, they can't keep up. They're not the manufacturer. So they're never going to have the latest product at the best price. Never going to have it because they're not the manufacturer. They're, they're sourcing their product. Very good chance we're going to work together. And they're going to use our brand of lights. I mean, so, I, you know, and they've seen us at the last few trade shows and they say, damn, you guys are good. Let's look at, and they bring their test meters over and they, they, they <laughs> see how strong our lights are. And we talk about our components and our warranty and how well we take, we, we, we take care of our customers and support our product. And it's like, you know what? we should be buying our products from you. We should be buying your lights. <laughs> That's what we should be. So I think, I think the trade shows are good. I think there's a lot of, a lot of things can happen at trade shows. So. One of the things though, I do wonder the sort of, what do you want to call it? Cheerleader aspect of expos have encouraged a lot of people to get into the business that shouldn't have gone in. Oh yeah. And you know, and you said this earlier, I mean, as, as the industry gets more competitive, the guys that don't have their business, you know, buttoned up, no matter where they are in the industry, they're the ones that are going to struggle and, and be the first ones out, whether they're a grower or they're a manufacturer or whatever, the industry is going to mature. And, you know, we've got maybe 10 years. I don't know what the number is, you know, but we've got the next decade or so to make hay here in this industry. And, you know, you know, if it ever gets approved federally, that'll really change things quickly. But I think you've got a lot of multi-state growers. You got a, you got some some of these companies like True North that's in Michigan and other places. I mean, you got some some really large players, multi-state growers, that are making it tough on a little guy. So you're right. I, I mean, I I think the guys that don't have their act together are, are going to be in trouble the first. Have you had problems with interstate banking with cannabis? Not personally, no, mm -mm. no, no. We don't. But I have heard there are problems with it. So, I mean, I, you know, I hear that 
I hear that complaint from time to time, but it hasn't affected us. So when you're dealing with legal cannabis companies, mm -hmm. it it's the same as dealing with any other company when it comes yeah, to so, banking. Right. So our 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 standard our standard process is that they've got to pay it, again, it depends if it's coming out of a warehouse, if it's coming from China. But we stock all of the everyday product in California. We have two big warehouses out there. And we probably have, I don't know, probably ten thousand units total of all of our products. I mean, we've got a lot. We have several containers on hand all the time. But normally what we require is that they have to wire transfer the money to us. And then once the money clears, then we, we make the shipment out the same or the next day. That's our standard procedure. Now, if they, if it's coming from China, like for example, if they're a 480 volt grow, which again, they're, they're not as common. We don't stock those items. They have to give us a 30% deposit. We start to manufacturing, and then when all the products hit stateside, then they have to pay the balance before we ship to them. We don't really take a lot of chance. We're not a bank, so we don't take a lot of chances on the financing side. Since you're China sourced, how many problems have you had as far as your uh, pipeline, your supply? You know, I'm knock on wood, I haven't had any yet. Our methodology on that is to kind of straight, stay ahead of it. I know the week before Chinese New Year, we put 10 containers on the water. to try, Anticipating there may be some delays after Chinese New Year, we're getting container space. And we wanted, you know, plenty of product in the U.S. And we sell a container or two a week of product. Um, but we floated 10, 10, 10 containers a week before CNY hit just to be kind of be ahead of that concern. Um, so like I said, knock on wood, we really haven't had any issues. Some of the components have long lead time. So at the manufacturing level, some of the components have 120 day lead time. And so far we've been able to kind of stay ahead of that, um, that requirement and not have it really hurt our business. So you source everything from China? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All the upstream components are Chinese. Made. Yeah. Yeah. Do I mean, you have any worries about that in the present international situation i think my worries are no bigger than anybody else's right um, well the reason i, I mentioned that there's a lot yeah. of companies that are now actively trying to be able to source within yeah. north america and i was curious about whether you yeah. guys have thought about that i think that i think the question there is we have not thought about it i think the question there though is that how many of the components are they using are coming from China? And I would venture to say a bunch of them. So they may, they may be doing some partial manufacturing and some assembly in the U.S., but they're relying very heavily on a lot of those components to come from China. I just, I'm just being frank. Well, I, I know that presently, but it, things do change. And when they change, yeah. they change hard and fast. Yeah. Well, if China got shut off, or do you have contingency yeah. plans? We don't yet. I think the, I think the more natural process is going to be other countries in Southeast Asia. Labor costs in the U.S. is just going to make it cost prohibitive. I, 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 and I know we have some American-made competitors that they say they're American-made, but a lot of those components, as I mentioned earlier, are made in other countries. The, I would say maybe they're and maybe the U.S. or Mexico is a phase two or phase three. But I think phase phase one is going to be more like Vietnam or Malaysia or something like this or Thailand, where it's out of China in a country that has a better relationship with the U.S. And even those countries initially will be using China until their supply chains are, are more mature. A lot of the components are going to be coming from China. I think I do think that over time, over the next 20 years, I think that some of these other countries in Southeast Asia will have 
we'll have, you know, comparable manufacturing. Indy is another good one, for example. They're going to have comparable manufacturing capabilities and upstream supply chain comparable to China. Um, it, it took us 40 years to make China what they are. It's not going to, we're not going to unravel that overnight. It's going to take some time. Since you've been in this so long? I mean, I speak Chinese and I've been going to China for more than 20 years. I have, I have a lot of experience with China just for what it's worth. So, but it doesn't bother you that there's a bunch of people thinks that labor environment's exploited. Oh, I, I don't think it's my decision. (laughs) I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's my decision. I think, I think it's a it's a factor of doing business in today's product business, and I think that it's going to gradually evolve into something different than what it is today. I think that that process has started already, and I think it's going to continue. You know, I, you know, I I could sit here and give you lots of pros and cons about why deal with China because I've done it for 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 such a long time, and I've sold hundreds of millions of dollars of product made in China from made in China product so to all the big retailers in the U.S. and abroad. So I I'm very familiar with with what's going on. Um, well, but the reason why I mentioned about the China part is part of the cannabis community is very sensitive to the fact that China has a couple times tried to dump isolate on the North American market and and really did start that downward slide yeah. on cannabinoids and they would come in and take over our market in a heartbeat if they could. But that's not just cannabis. I mean, look at wineries, for example. I mean, look at other businesses. I mean, I, China- I know and that's what I'm saying is <laughs> it's just because it's yeah. happening. And, yeah. and like I said, I'm a small farmer. And yeah. if I have to compete with China. Yeah. Well, I, on a personal note, I personally believe, and again, this is me talking. I think the competition to China is a healthy thing and it's good for us. It's and, and actually it may even make them better, but I think, I think there needs to be more competition related to country of origin. No question. I, I think that's a very healthy project for all of us, regardless of industry is to really, you know, develop multiple countries of origin and to, and to have solutions and choices than other than just China. I think this is very important to our future as a nation as well. And, and I think China knows that. Um, the problem is, and, and, you know, we spent 40 years doing this and really no one in the administration up until just a few years ago even cared. Nobody. Farmers did. Right. Okay. But I'm, I'm talking about people that could actually influence change, you know, at the political, at the high, highest political levels. I don't think, you know, I think we let that happen. And I think, you know, I think we let that happen. And now all of us, all of us are sitting around the table saying, oh, shit, what did we do? We created a monster. Do you think the American cannabis market should be protected from overseas? I say yes, but the next question is how. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's very easy. I mean, you can't sell cannabinoids in Colorado, high THC, that doesn't come from Colorado. Yeah. If the North American cannabis market goes under, doesn't your market go under? For the grow light, sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. How much do you guys deal in, uh, in cannabis up in Canada? Quite a bit. We have a lot of Canadian customers. We have, we have a lot. Yeah. What the hell yeah. went wrong? Uh, they made it federally legal. <laughs> no, no. What I'm talking about is all the big publicly traded companies that have been just losing barge loads of money. I think going federal is a bad idea. I think that's, a, I think that's just a really bad idea for a lot of reasons. Becoming a federal program 
and it would definitely hurt the U.S. too. And I don't think it's as big a risk in the U.S. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But I think that takes away so much competition and capitalistic ways of doing business. And I just think that's bad for the industry. Why do you think so many publicly traded companies, cannabis companies, whether it's Canada or United States, don't seem capable of making money? I don't think they can change fast enough when the price changes. I don't think they're fast, they're quick enough to be, execute changes. When a can of, pound of cannabis sells for 3000 and a year later sells for 1000 they can't make the adjustments fast enough. They just can't do it. So, which has been one of my debates, how yeah. much can you scale up in cannabis and get still get it, the economy of scale? There's a breaking point. There is a threshold. Yeah, there is a threshold for sure. So right now with the companies you're dealing with, what are you seeing as a sweet spot for cannabis? I probably today spend more time with the guys that are that are doing 20,000 to 50,000 square feet. Okay. I don't have nearly as much experience with the over 50,000 square feet growers. <laughs> so that's probably a really good thing too. Yeah. I think my guys that are growing in 25 to, to 30,000 square feet, they, they just run great operations, you know, use newer technology, have, you know, have good operating practices that, you know, keep your plants healthy and disease free, manage your humidity, manage your CO2. I mean, I think those guys that are running those good clean, have good labor when they do their, their, their labor, they have the same people they use all the time for their harvest. I mean, I just think they run good operations. Bigger companies, gigantic companies, I just think that the people doing the work don't have a don't have the vested interest. They're not the owners. They're not the guy signing the paycheck. That uh, does make a difference, doesn't it? It makes a huge difference. <laughs> if the guy that's signing the paycheck and has got his own money at stake every day, he's going to watch his business a lot closer than someone that's hired to be a CEO or, or something else that has no money in the game. I, I think competition is a beautiful thing. It's gonna it's gonna weed out a lot of guys that can't they can't cut the mustard for sure. Darwinian so, capitalism. I've got an MBA in finance You know, I've been an operator for, you know, I'll be 60 my next birthdays. I've been an operator since I was in my early twenties and manage people since I was in my early twenties. So I'm almost 40 years as a, as a, you know, leadership roles, managing different types of companies and sizes and, and different industries. I'm a believer in capitalism. I am. I'm surprised, and I don't know if you are. I would have thought by now there would have been more consolidation. I think because the states are all at varying levels of of rolling out their programs, I just think it's it's been prohibitive. There are some, there are a lot of multi-state growers, though. There are. I mean, I don't know if you realize it or not, but the states require them to be have be set up as separate companies and so forth. So. Although they're multi-state growers, there's still a lot of uniqueness at the, at the individual state level. I think you're going to see consolidation. I think you're going to see more. I mentioned some earlier in the call among some of the manufacturers. Um, I think you're going to see more consolidation. But I think because of the way it's very fragmented at the state level, I think, I think it won't happen as rapidly as some wanted to. Where do you see this going in three to five years? Yeah, I would say in three to five years, I think the industry will continue to grow at a pretty good clip. I think it's growing at what, 8% a year or something like that. You know, three to five years from now, you may not have all states fully legal, but I'd say two thirds of the states will probably be fully legal. And there'll be some holdout states that, that won't have recreational 
legal yet, probably in three to five years. But I'd, I'd say two thirds of the states will be fully legal. There's going to be continued pressure on price, the price. But I also think that some of these states that have been doing it a while, I think there's going to be more requirements around testing, product testing. I think there's going to be more regulatory requirements around the quality of product and safety of product. Well, one thing we that has changed here in the state of Tennessee, we probably have the most lenient high CBD laws in the nation. Uh, mm. Not sure how we got it, but, you know, we can sell D8. We can sell. Wow. We can, we make our own D8, D9. So I see. we can make edibles here that have more THC in them than what you could sell. And I'm talking about D9 too, than what you could sell in Colorado. Interesting. Well, it's that weird sort of the thing that's, that's kind of evolved here. And so in that world, it's kind of curious to see where the niches will, will establish. Have you ever thought about starting to buy out other companies? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we've considered buying other lighting companies. I mean, I've considered and have had met with an attorney to start my own growing though. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I think if anything, it's made more, it's made, it's made the industry a lot more appealing to me. Wouldn't it just be helpful beyond belief? Oh, for sure. And I've got one investment I'm doing. I've, 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 it hasn't been funded yet, but I am going to be a partner in a company in Michigan. And I've met with an attorney a few times and I've set up a, um, a, a ownership company and also another operations company for my own cannabis business. I haven't done it yet, but I've done a lot of preliminary work. Um, and I think the the main reason is to become more of an expert. I think I think the more I become an expert at all facets of the industry, and I can say I'm a grower myself, I just think it adds a lot of credibility. So I'm talking with growers and talking about the performance of our lights and the impact we'll have on our business. I can speak more, you know, from my own experience. And it, I think just think that's a very powerful thing. It is. And I can't tell you how powerfully because it's nothing yeah. worse than talking to somebody about their products and how their products can help me. And then you ask them, well, have you ever grown anything with this? <laughs> yeah, I know. No, yeah. I haven't. But I know but, people who have. Well, I'm vis- I mean, I visit, t- I mean, I make it a matter of, 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 uh, of effort to visit growers face to face as much as I can and talk about their experience and get their feedback, all of it, good and bad. Um, to make sure that we're doing our part to support them. So, um, and that's the best I can do today because I'm not a grower, but I, but I may be soon. You may be, I might surprise you. I may be soon. I'm, the companies are set up. So I just got to go to the next step now. Well, what if you do welcome to the club, <laughs> <laughs> realize that there will be days. I've, I've been seriously, this is the 50th year since I grew my first cannabis plant. Yeah, congratulations. That's an, that's an uh, honor it's, to talk it's to sad. you. It's, it's, it's sad. Um, <laughs> but I still, well, I still, and my partner's been doing it for a long time too. And we still walk out there and see something and we go, never seen that before. Yeah. In <laughs> yeah. that way, it's infinitely interesting, challenging, however you want. But I will say this, and I'm warning you, cannabis can get a hold of a man. Okay. I'm serious. It's like mining gold or anything else. Yeah. When you do it, it can get, it's like, yeah. you'll find yourself spending more and more time doing that. Yeah. I, t- I understand what you mean. And, and, and I think my, my life that I have, because I've, I've, you know, my investments and, 
you know, lived in Silicon Valley for 10 years and, and was a seed investor for startup companies out there. I'm on two or three other board of directors. So, I mean, I don't have, unfortunately, my life will keep me from getting too wrapped up in any one of the businesses because I just got too much on my plate to do allow that to happen. It just won't happen. There's just not enough of me to do that. So I'm going to have to have really good people, you know, on the team to help, you know, do some of the lifting for me because I, I just can't do it. So. Wait till you start making excuses to go hang out with your plants. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just say All right. Uh, uh, Mark, beware! I got it. Okay, yeah. Mr. Step. Yes, sir. I am sorry. I've been monopolizing this time. Do you have any questions and stuff? Uh, I do have a couple of questions. Getting back to environmental concerns, I know LED technology is lighting where it's at right now. Do you see any other technologies on the horizon that might surpass LED in its efficiency? No, I think that you know. I think that we'll use other. You know, I think the light source, in terms of the light source question, it's going to remain LED. I don't think that we're going to go to another light source. I do think that we'll continue to, over time, you know, you know, make modest improvements on efficacy and efficiency and things like that. But I think in terms of, you know, giant, you know, innovation that's going to revolutionize, you know, how we use lighting, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's up ahead. I think it's going to be modest improvements year over year. And I think LED is where it's going to be. And I, I mean, and if you think about it, we're really only where we're at today in terms of our performance and price points. We've only been there about a year, maybe 18 months. I mean, just, just in the last couple of years, we've seen, you know, great improvements in performance of LED and significant decrease in pricing just in the last couple of years. Yeah. And then do you see, um, the use of wind power or solar power as a power source for lighting agriculture being Yeah, I see solar being used. Yeah, I, I do. I think solar is more, I think solar is probably more appropriate just because, you know, if, you know, usually your grows are out in, not always, but majority of the times they're in where there's land around and, you know, there's land or is, you know, that can be used for solar farms, things like that. I, I'm, I'm very involved with a solar company. My last, my last job, or when I was with Jaiway for for more than a decade, you know, they're a they're a commercial lighting company, but they're also a, a solar company, and they're one of the largest producers of solar energy in China. They're in the top ten producers of solar power in China, and they're a public company. Um, so I have a lot of knowledge related to solar technology and utilization thereof. And, and, and I've got solar in my house and, you know, I'm, so I'm, I'm very familiar with solar. And I do think that solar is a great fit for, uh, for growing. Um, especially if, you, if you're outdoor, if you're greenhouse environment or outdoor growing or you're in an area that you've got plenty of land because it doesn't take a much land for a solar farm to produce a fair amount of power. Mark, I can't thank you enough for being on here. We really appreciate it because we never had anybody on the show so far that did lights. I mean, oh, as great. a matter of fact, yeah. well, it is. The whole point about this show is as many aspects of cannabis as possible. And for a huge amount of, of cannabis of farmers or growers in North America, lighting is integral. Yeah. Well, and it's also one of their more expensive investments. If you look at, at HVAC and lighting and things like that, I mean, other than the building and the property and the building the structure itself, lighting is going to be one of the largest investments a grower is going to make. So it is it is an important 
part of the overall strategy and, and it is a big cost. So it's, it's, you know, it's definitely worthy of a fair amount of dialogue and education for sure. All right. Well, this is the portion of our show where we do shameless self-promotion. So I need for you to tell everybody how they can get a hold of you and how they can get a hold of your company. Yeah. So my, you know, ablighting.com is our website and you can fill out a form there if you want some follow-up. My email address us is uh, Mark, M-A-R-K dot Honeycut, H-O-N-E-Y-C-U-T-T at ablighting.com. So you can send me an email direct as well. Um, and I read every email and I may not be the one to call you back, but I read every email and make sure that someone takes care of it. And so the best way, they are the best ways to send me an email or go to the website and leave a, uh, a comment out there. That's probably the best way. That way there's some audit trail that you've, you've reached out to us. But I, again, I think that, um, you know, we welcome all customers of all sizes. And, you know, the one thing I would say is that if you if you're looking for a high quality product, a, you know, really a, a tier one product at a very good, reasonable price, then we've got great solutions for you. OK, well, that's wonderful. I'm going to wrap this bad boy up. Thank you all very much. It was a pleasure being with you. I learned some things, too. Thank all you. All right, Mr. Stepp. Yeah, it was great. And uh yeah, like uh, Harold said earlier, good luck on the uh, farming. Now, okay. one thing about it is, I, I hope that in the future, after you start growing, that we can get you back on. Okay. All right. Well, this is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Ham Farmer. You've been listening to Full Contact Cannabis, sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown. And as always, keep one eye on the weather and the other eye on the market. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com. Howdy, folks. This is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer. And I just wanted to thank all you people that have been listening to us, downloading, and also heading on over to our sponsor, Tennessee Homegrown, and buying their wonderful products. We can't do it without you guys, and we know that. And we will always listen, and we will always be there for you as far as our products and also information about our products. Tennessee Homegrown, once again, wants to thank all of you wonderful folks for listening to our podcast and buying our products.